So with all that said, uh, just thank you, Kara, for reading that text. Uh, if you kind of got a little squirmy hearing things like, surely I was sinful in my mother's womb, and you're like, what sort of church did I walk into? Um, this is going to be such an uncomfortable sermon for you, and I'm so, I'm just so excited. I'm so excited to see you squirm. I hope you don't leave here. You would fail me as a, as a friend or a pastor or whatever in saying, like, that was a really nice sermon. Don't say it's nice. There's nothing about this that should be nice. Uh, I hope that you get squirmish and a little uncomfortable and it forces you uh, to, to go there. Um, I think a church should be a place that goes there. I think a church should be a place that looks more like an AA meeting than it does a, a concert. Uh, I think the church should be a place where we, are, we can be honest with ourselves and begin to be honest with each other. That's actually our new slogan, sanctuary, we go there. Uh, so, welcome. Anyway, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we recognize as people made in your image, as people dearly loved, forgiven, and set free, that you, uh, you know, I say this phrase, Lord, all the time up in front of people, and I, I mean it every time, that you love us right where we're at, and, and I know you love us far too much to let us stay there, and that loving us far too much to let us stay there part, Lord, I pray today that we would experience not condemnation, but love, um, not guilt, but conviction uh, as we uh, explore uh, this next chapter, Lord, of our series. So in your name, everybody said amen. There's a lot of amening today. Uh, does anybody have a football on them? I, I had this idea far too late, so I didn't get the prop. Anyone have a ball of any kind? Chris Beck, could you cut off your man bun? Could I throw that? No. Oh my gosh, I was at a buddy's bachelor party the other day, and there were, <laughs> there were um, two friends of mine, so I'm sitting here, and they're on the other side of the table, and the two of them uh, both have man buns. You're all familiar with the man bun, right? This is a movement sweeping the nation. Anyone not familiar with the man bun? Would you raise your hand? Not familiar with the man bun? All right, Chris, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, and I'll buy you. That's a man bun. I'd have Rob Harkin stand up, but it's not a fully developed man bun yet. He's still in the adolescent stage, I think, of the man bun. It's, I think Brad Pitt, right, had it once? Is that, I mean, not that everyone was looking at Brad Pitt to take their fashion advice, but probably. And, uh, or Johnny Depp. Um, did he have the, I don't know why I'm talking about man buns at all. I needed a ball. Man bun, Chris stood up. There you go. Um, this... This psalm that Kara read, Psalm 51, it's written by a guy named David. It's written just after he um, tried to get one of his friends murdered. He cheated on his, on his friend with, with his friend's wife and, um, they had a, and got her pregnant. Uh, and this is a man after God's own heart. And, uh, and yeah, and then he writes this in response to getting caught in this brutal sin. And so the reason why I asked for a football is, uh, anyone familiar with a Hail Mary? Yeah, so a Hail Mary, for those of you unfamiliar, uh, would be, uh, here, Edison, stand up real quick. Jason, Lars, come here. So, what's up? Welcome. So, yeah, can you stand up, Leon, too? All right, so you guys know what Hail Mary is, right? All of you? No? Hopefully. Jason's not quite sure. All right, so a Hail Mary would be this. 
They're in the end zone, which is for football. This is where you score points. So you cross a line, right? Somebody with a ball, whether they run it over, whether they throw it over, when they catch the ball. We have a lot of artists. I got to explain things like football. And so you catch the ball, and then you score, a, you score points. You score six points, and then you kick a field goal, and you get seven. So you score if you cross the end zone. So Hail Mary would be, it's like the end of the game. I've got to get 100 yards down the field, and I'm the quarterback, so I'm the guy with the ball. And so I really have no other option. Remember the Doug Flutie? Anyone remember the big Doug Flutie Hail Mary? Anybody? Yeah, boy. All right, two people. And so I would pretend I have a football. And so it's like the clock is counting down. A bunch of people are about to tackle me. And I, this, this, Leon's getting into it. And I just throw the ball. I just threw the ball. And then Jason apparently caught it. I don't know why I needed all you. Basically, we didn't even decide offense, defense. You were all going for it. Bet you can all sit down. That was the worst. <laughs> Basically, you're throwing it into a crowd of people and you're hoping that your guy catches it. That's it. You're just, it's like a, it's like a prayer. Uh, I'm pretty sure the uh, Hail Mary part is where the prayer part comes from, why it was named that. Like, Hail Mary, mother. Like, you're just like, please. And it gets caught. So, this is what David is essentially doing. And I say that because of this. The stuff that he mentions, and we're about to go through the psalm, in this psalm, he's like, oh my gosh, I just got caught for doing a ton of miserable, miserable things. He does not have, in written redemptive history, as far as we know, any sense that God would forgive what he did. No, no assurance of that. This is before Jesus... This is a, he, he, he seems to understand, and this will make sense of why he is a man after God's own heart, because he seems to understand the heart of God, but there's no assurance. He's somebody who has written about how much he loves the law, right? The law was given by God to show these first people what it means to live life. The law was meant to be a liberating thing that showed them what this covenant and relationship looked like between people and God. So he knows, you kill somebody, you're done. You commit adultery, you're done. What's that 30 rock sketch? You're burnt. So, turn with your Bibles. I want to just set up David a little bit here. We're going to come back to this in a moment. I don't want to op have you open your Bibles to Genesis 3. So we're going through the scriptures um, somehow in six weeks, which is a bit ridiculous. Um, but we want to outline the overarching story of God, like the trailer pointed out. There's something profound um, about if we understand what our story is, if it's rooted in history, and if it's rooted in truth, and it's truly rooted around our core longings, um, then this will shape how we think about the world. Last week, we talked about how the scriptures open with being made in the image of God, and how profound that was in that context, and how that has literally shaped how we understand human rights today. In some way, if you back the truck up and trace the thread of philosophical thought, you don't get like the United Nations without Genesis 1. This is the core sense in the Judeo-Christian like underpinning of so much of Western society of how we understand something like everyone's created equal in the image of God. Because honestly, that's not really true, right? Some people are born with deformity. Some people are born really broken, right? Most men are physically stronger than women, so men should be better, right? Like all these presumptions that we just assume don't exist anymore, but are actually rooted. Uh, Paul is a writer informed, right, in the scriptures, informed by the Genesis 1 account. And he says, like, there's neither man, woman, slave, nor free. 
Thomas Cahill, a writer, points out that's the first time that we can find in recorded history that anybody said anything as ridiculous as that. So despite what some people might think that the Bible is some oppressive patriarchal book, it's actually wildly liberating when read in your context. We talked about all that last week, right? Also, I spoke for a really long time last week, so I'm going to try not to do that this week. Sound good? Can I get an amen? (laughs) Don't you dare amen that. So in Genesis 3, we have the introduction of sin. And what we have in this story, for those of you not familiar, is, uh, is the man, Adam, the living, this this, this man, this picture, depending on how you read Genesis, the Genesis 1 account, this powerful, powerful story that is meant to show us who we are at our base. Eve, mother of the living, right, called the helper, the same term that's given to God 22 times in the Old Testament, that same phrase of helper is given to Eve. So there's this image of what these first two people are about, and they're walking with God, and everything is right with God. They're naked and unashamed is, the text, is how the text talks about it. And then... Given the choice to trust God or not, they are tempted and they end up, and the the story here is eating of the tree, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decide that our way, despite all that we have, I mean, let's, let's be honest here. Adam is in a garden, right, naked, all the food flourishing he needs with a naked woman. I mean, this is the core longing of men to this day. It's just, you know, he's literally the man in every sense of the man. <laughs> and yet, there's this temptation for both, <laughs> I kid, there's this temptation for both of them to actually trust something outside of God, that God's way is not enough. They're given everything, and yet how Genesis 3 reads, um, and for those of you who've been following along with our devotional series, you know how this goes. What happens after this is what's fantastically interesting, these observations that are made. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? The Lord called to these guys. The the God asked where somebody was. There might be something else going on here. Like, where are you? Like, what have you done? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, classic here. The woman made me do it. Again, It's a good thing, like, things really change. You know, history is really, we've really evolved. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. She blames, she pushes it away. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this. And this is where the ancient Jewish scripture and the ancient Jewish commentary talk a lot about how these, the curse is what, if you're around Christian tradition at all, this is from, called the curse. And what rabbis often communicate is these are observations. This is sort of the reality of what's happened, what will come. Remember, this is a story written to slaves to help them understand, to to point to the truth about who they are and why brokenness is in the world. 
And so cursed are you above all livestock and the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. You desire, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Awesome. The reality Like, what on earth does this ancient weird story have to do with this? This is simply a sober reminder of what happens when we choose to not trust the way of God. There are implications for their environment, right? When we look back and we trace something like uh, global warming, when we look at the brokenness of biology, Paul says later on in the New Testament, the entire earth is groaning. There's a sense of when given choice to trust and not, our very actions can affect the ground around us can actually in some subtle ways begin to affect things as fundamental as biology. That's why I'm not surprised when people are are born with all sorts of whatever fill in the blank, right? This is the reality of, of at least the Christian story that there is some fundamental flaw and brokenness in all biology. For the woman, right, um, her, she will look, it says she will look, kind of look to the man. So this is sort of a, a statement, you know, it's interesting when people are like, look, this is why, you know, you got to make sure men are always over women. I love that when they quote this. Yeah, Genesis, you know, 3.16. Like, that, that's the reality. Like, this is the curse. Like, this is a bad thing. We're, we're supposed to be working away from this. This gets used as like a proof text to go, yeah, look, see, that's just the order of things. It's like, no, no bad. Jesus, this is bad. And so we see that there's some sense that, that and again, this always sounds like a generalization, and any of you who are, who are combative personality types like myself, uh, are immediately going to say, well, it's not everybody. No, it's not everybody. But we understand as followers of Jesus that there is some core sense that specifically in this story and speaking to women, that you will end up in all the wrong sorts of way looking to men in a way that you shouldn't be. Men, it then talks about, in the same way, uh, they're not looking to God, not trusting God, will end up looking to their work. And your very work, which should be a blessing, just like in women, childbirth should be a blessing and a joy. These things will end up being corrupted. So there's so much we could talk about that, and I actually don't want to park there. But I wanted to make sure we at least address as we're going through the story series. This is the account. This is the picture with the ancient rabbis called the observations. When we begin to not trust the way of Jesus as the way of life, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. He's the image of the invisible God. So he's the ultimate picture of what God is like. When you don't begin to trust and when you don't enter into that relationship of trusting God's ways, the best way, and cultivating that, that that's what it means to be fully human, you begin to see the repercussions. And as we get going, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get more into this. This is something that is felt across the spectrum. Could you bring up that quote slide really quick? These are a few quotes um, that I know are gonna be a little hard to see. But three, um, f- actually four of these five quotes are not from folks, as far as I know, that are followers of Jesus. There is a distinct sense that what happens when we begin to distrust, and they wouldn't frame it like this, 
but to not center ourselves on the good, true, and the beautiful that we find in Jesus. There is a propensity in our human nature, which is the Genesis 3 story, that something in our core nature has become broken. We're still made in the image of God. God still said the creation was good, but something has become fatally flawed in all of us, and we recognize this as not just the story of Adam and Eve as a story that happened, but the Adam, Adam and Eve story is a story that happens every day. We choose life outside of God. So I love these. They're really, really brutal and get us off to a chipper start. Charles Bukowski. Anyone know Charles Bukowski? Drunken mess of a megalomaniac poet. Totally encourage you to read him. He's just amazing. <laughs> We're all, someone's got to go look up his poetry right now and I'm going to get an email. We're all going to die, all of us. What a circus. That alone should make us love each other, but it doesn't. We are terrorized and flattened by trivialities. We are eaten up by nothing. Uh, the band Arcade Fire, Wynn Butler, he writes this. Do you think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? I have my doubts about it. There's a real sense in this song, if you know that song, of just sort of like uh, I, of not being able to reconcile the sort of emptiness that he sees around himself. And then he begins to see in, in himself, in my understanding of the song. Jack Kerouac my fault, my, another person you should be reading, Jack Kerouac, my fault, my failure is not the passions that I have, but my lack of control over them. Douglas Copeland, I'm trying to feel more well-adjusted than uh, actually I am, which I guess is the human condition. These are people who do not have a Christian worldview. These are folks who just have this sense that at the core base of who I am, there is something wrong. There is something out of whack. And so the reason why, as we're talking about the whole story of God and how that informs your story right here in Providence, in Rhode Island, at this day and age, is because we actually believe that a significant amount of what we do in life depends entirely upon what story we believe we're a part of. A significant amount of what we do in life depends entirely upon what story we believe we are a part of. If we want to get better, to get healthier, to be more beautiful and full of wonder, then we have to be honest about what the problem is. If our diagnosis is wrong, the cure is going to be wrong, right? Anyone who's in the medical profession, we know this. When we get the diagnosis wrong, there's nothing solid usually that can come from that because we don't understand what the core problem is, which is why I want to jump from Genesis 3 to the Psalms, to our Hail Mary passage to our, here's this guy, David, who is in this long line who's gonna lead to Jesus who just, just bombs life, like just total fail. So a little bit of background. Um, oh, and something just to say about the psalm I found. This was written up as one of the 100 most compelling pieces of literature in Western culture, according to a number of different sources, Atlantic being one of them. It's just fascinating how folks outside of Christian world <laughs> have looked on this piece and just found something so compelling. So here's the context of what's happening, and then I want to walk through it. Um, this is a time of year when the kings would go out to war. So this was the, there was a season because there would be a snowy season, and you wouldn't be able to actually go out and you wouldn't be able to fight. And so there was actually seasons, which sounds crazy, where battles would often happen. Um, David stays home. David is the king. And uh, he's married to Michael, who kind of resents him. There's a childbearing issue. So he's got some, like, distraught home life. We're going to read more about that a little later on. And he's in a city where most of the men are gone. 
It's in a city where most of the men are gone. So it would be safe to say there may or may not be a bit of sexual tension in the city. He's in a position of power and influence. He goes up on his roof. He's walking around, and he sees a beautiful woman. And something awakens in his heart. He is compelled by her beauty. He is moved in some way by seeing this naked woman. And so he calls for her. Now, this woman's name is Bethsaida, and it puts her in a really, really um, awkward place because her husband is one of David's um, mighty men, if you're familiar with the scripture. He's one of the guys that when David was ostracized, when David was a, a leader uh, without anything to lead, he was uh, pushed out. He was uh, being hunted by some folks at one point. He had some men around him who believed in his leadership and came around him and fought mightily for him and, and what they understood David's role to be in Israel. So this is one of his mates, his best, best buds. And his wife, he sees on the roof naked, and he's like, mm, come over. This puts her in a little awkward position because I'm sure she's thinking he's not inviting me over for tea. Uh, and he comes over and they end up uh, with his position, power. We don't know what, really exactly what happens other than they have sex. And then he finds out a little later on that she is actually pregnant. So once he finds out he's pregnant, this is, I mean, he's again a man who is after God's own heart. He's a man who's written all these beautiful psalms about the law and understanding what it means to be faithful to this God. He knows the Genesis 3 story. He knows the reality that not trusting the way of God and not trusting his good and beautiful commands actually leads to death. It's actually not the best possible way to live. And so he, in recognizing this, he scrambles. And this is where everything gets really like Shakespearean. All right, so he's, got a, he's gotten this woman pregnant. David calls for her husband, his buddy, Uriah. There was a time, um, again, when he was a nobody, and Uriah was like his best bud. So David calls him back uh, out from battle, because remember, all the men are out at battle. And he says, hey, why don't you go, uh, you know, Uriah, my boy, why don't you go take a break? Why don't you go, like, be with your wife? And we read that, and we're like, oh, that's really nice. He's like, no, go have sex with your wife. That's literally what that is saying. Because if he can get Uriah to have sex with her, then you guys know how this all works, right? Then he might think it's the baby. Sorry, I'm doing, like, sex education for a couple kids right now, and I'm really, I'm sorry, parents. But this is, this, he goes to them, and he goes, all right, why don't you guys do this, and this will cover him, right? They don't have, like, the DNA testing quite yet in world history. This guy has so much integrity, though. He comes, he's like, I can't go be with my wife. Are you kidding, king? Like, my men are out at battle. Like, I can't come home and, and take, take hold of this privilege and go spend a wonderful night with my wife while all these men are out? you got to send me back out there. I'm not quite sure why you have me here, but I, I come to the service of my king, but i got to go back out. I wouldn't do that to my men for them to know that I'm just at home, like, loving my wife while they're out fighting. And so David, and then in this moment, does what any good person who's trying to coerce somebody else would do, and he adds alcohol. Um, <laughs> and so he tries to get him drunk, and he gets him drunk, and still, still, he is faithful and a man of integrity. He goes, no, there's no way. There's no way. Appreciate the whiskey, but there's no way I'm going home. So David then, having apparently in his mind no choice, he contacts his commander uh, in a letter that is given to Uriah. So he's actually carrying his death sentence because he's carrying, he seals a letter and Uriah is going to go and give this to the commander 
of the battle. And basically what the note says is, hey, pull back at just the right time so he's killed and it doesn't look, and it looks like an accident. So he kills his, his best friend because of this sin. And it looks like he's gotten away with it. It looks like he's gotten away with it and then his buddy Nathan shows up and Nathan kind of ruins the party. If you have your, uh, your Bibles with you, 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, and these guys were, were good friends, are good friends. There were t- so David, Nathan comes, he, I want to tell you a story. David's a storyteller, so I got to imagine he was, he was ready for this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. Did you say ewe lamb, ewe lamb? It's you, you lamb, thank you. He had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. All right, so he just goes and like, yeah, I'm not going to take one of mine. How about I take uh, yours? And this guy who clearly has an unhealthy attachment to his sheep, he comes and takes it. And um, David burns with anger. Here's the story that Nathan just tells him. And David, it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord of God Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you this master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by saying what is evil in his eyes? Man, I love this story. Not because it's Shakespearean. Not because it's fascinating. Not because it plays out like a really bad soap opera. I love this story because David's next response in getting caught is to repent. That even though he had chances before this, he gets to this moment and he turns not away from God, he turns to God. In this moment of shame and guilt. And, and what I love even more is that we see a guy with a divided heart. And I think that's most of us. A divided heart. We're part of you. Like sometimes we, we demonize people, right, uh, uh, in the media. It's like social media just like creates an echo chamber for this. Where it's like, oh, that person did that and they must be. Right? Like pictures of a, of a, of a celebrity get, you know, leaked that they were meant for a boyfriend. And then everybody goes like, oh my gosh, what a, an insert awful word and they condemn. Like we, we love to take a person with whatever they've done and then just attach, that's all of you. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true because if anybody did that to you, you'd be like, no, no, I'm not the sum total of that screw up. It happened, but that's not all. And we know this of David. Because David is a man who meditates on the word. David is a man who has done so much good, who loves and has a reverent heart for God. And yet he has done something awful, beyond awful. And in fact, we'll look in a second. This is actually, we could have seen this coming in David's life. 
David has a divided heart. He loves God and yet has this epic fail and he turns to God, not from God. So what does then true repentance look like? I think Psalm 51 gives us a little bit of a grid. I'm not big on like templates in the scripture because I think there's context is so important and it changes how we understand things. But man, there's something eternal that we see echoed then in the life of Jesus of how do we then confess and repent? How do we deal with our sin? This is the, one of the biggest things that we as followers of Jesus, or if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, like just to make sense of, like that probably core longing, like you agreeing with, with Kerouac or Arcade Fire, these sense, like you're like, oh, that resonates with me. The world is broken. There's something messed up inherently about kind of who I am. How do we deal with that? Do we dodge? Do we avoid? Do we, uh, you know, enter into sort of like image control? Do we move away? Like what does it look like to truly own things? And for those of us who are Christians in light of Jesus, how do we repent and confess? This is so fundamental what it means to live the life of God. So here's how we see this outline. And I'm gonna have a word, sort of uh, the, the, uh, the section that we're in and the bit of text underneath it on the screen. So the first is the appeal. This is how the psalm starts. He appeals to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Again, David knew the law. He knew the penalty for what he had done was death. Like this is like real sin. Like you may have like a lot of gray about what's really sin and what's not. And maybe you're going already to like the the really fuzzy, like hot button issues. Like he killed somebody. There are very few people in our society who really hold to a consistent worldview that say, well, murder is really relative. Right? Can we all just kind of agree murder, bad sin? Can we just attach the word sin even if you don't believe in it? Adultery. Maybe a little bit fuzzier for some folks, but in general as a society, we're like, yep, sin. David just, this is clear. And this is stuff that is, as a good Jew, trying to understand what it means to live in covenant community, the reality of anybody else doing this in the kingdom would have been death. This is not okay in light of what it means to walk with God. Again, this is before a full understanding of what the ancient scriptures were about when Jesus comes. So instead of falling on what the law said, he just cries out. He makes this appeal to the mercy of God. This is the Hail Mary moment that kicks it all off. David asked things of God that God had not done yet in recorded redemptive history. This is why it's important to know our past, to know our story. Like this was a brand new, like, yeah, I did all that. Please, Lord, have mercy True repentance doesn't start with our own sense of what we do. It just begins to start for David with, I just need God. He's the king. I've got to imagine he could come up with 18 other ways to hide, dodge, move. He could just kill Nathan right there, right? I mean, he's done already like far worse, like nothing like just killing another best friend. And David doesn't do this. There's a sense of immediate, uh, this is, I can't hide from this any longer. Look what I've done. My sin, he says, is ever before me. We know this. Like there's always just sort of this little like ticker tape on the bottom of like the screen of our lives, right? It's just like, man, my sin, am I broken? It does not go away. All right, what's the famous AA phrase? Wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, there you, it's my sin is ever before me. Sometimes we get caught up in all the flowery language of this psalm and think it doesn't relate to us. And yet this is speaking to the core aspects, I believe, of who we are as people. 
So then he moves to the confession. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And this isn't quite sure, like true, right? He didn't just sin against God. Like he's, <laughs> I think there's a few other characters in this situation that have actually been wronged. But for, for, um, for David, it's about getting first things first. It's about getting first things first. Right? One very popular definition of sin that I actually love and have even taught on years ago is sin is like the culpable disturbance of shalom, which is a way of saying like sin is really only about what you do to other people. If sin doesn't, if you do something wrong and it doesn't really affect anyone else, like it's not really, it's something else. Like the only way we, it's a subtle shift, but the only way we seem to understand sometimes sin, and this is more within the Christian world, is that it can only be, well, if I've done something wrong and I've harmed somebody, if I've messed something up and, and these folks who are at risk, and if I didn't care for the poor in this situation, then this happened. If I didn't step up and execute justice, if I only did something that wronged somebody, then that's, but David recognizes that's all true, and that's all part of what sin is. It's disrupting the good and the true and the beautiful. Anything that moves away from life, anything that moves away from what is good and what is the holy way of God, anything that moves away from beauty and wonder and love and justice, all that stuff is awful. But David goes right for the jugular. First and foremost, I've sinned against you, God. I recognize that even in the quiet of my heart, if no one else knew any of this, the reality is, is that you love me. You are, have been for me. You have given me the law. That's why David says like way cracked out scary things. I should never say David said cracked out things. I want to retract that. David says things that sound very cracked out to us. <laughs> when he says stuff like, well, I should have been obedient in my mother's womb. Like that's ridiculous. That's, that is absolutely foolishness even for ancient civilization. Like they were not, I, I, I refuse to believe like, well, they had an ancient belief that you know, fetuses could obey God. Like, no. This is poetry. He is crying out. Like, God, you've given everything. You've even given me breath. You started to create me. And if anything, I owe you all of it. That's the only place where there's life. It's the only place where there's hope. If I am just a sum total of, like, my biological makeup and then that's it, like, what am I doing here? You're the one who has provided a way out. You're the one who has given meaning and purpose and love and is calling creation home. You're the one. And so he goes, wait, first things first. I know I messed up with Nathan. I know I messed up with this girl. I know I betrayed Israel. I know I've probably hurt a ton of other people. But first and foremost, God, it's you. It's you who I've sinned against. It's you. And so this is his confession. I want to read this quote to you. The big shift in modern theology related to sin is a move from viewing sin as primarily against God, which is criminal, to viewing sin as primarily against each other, which is civil. This can mean that as long as we don't hurt others, God will justify however we choose to live. Our primary lens related to sin is then justice and the other rather than righteousness before God. This can make sin man-centered rather than God-centered and weaken our passion for holiness. David, however, knew the true nature of sin when he cried, against you only have I sinned, even though there was much sin against others. It starts there. Next, he moves from confession to restoration. 
And I want to break up restoration into three parts. He first says, wash me. Behold, you desire truth in my innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He's saying, I don't have the capacity within myself, no matter how many layers of good deeds, no matter how many other things I've good, no matter how much I want to like, like spin this. Anyone like really good at spinning things? Especially to yourself? Like I'm so good at it. My, my capacity to justify anything. Uh, my wife has a, a joke, like she will talk to other people like, you know, it's a really good thing. I don't know how to think better about that. Like, oh, let me ask Andrew. She said this on a number of occasions. Oh, Andrew will help you take this thing that appears to be A and make it kind of feel like B. I'm not proud of this. This is just a fatal flaw in my personality. You need to pray for me. He says, no matter what you do, no matter what good deeds, no matter how you spin this thing, I need you, Lord, to wash me. And this metaphor of hyssop, hyssop was an offering for lepers. Hyssop was the thing that you would, um, that, that was the cry and the sacrifice you would make if you were a leper. So David is saying and using this phrase, hyssop, he's going, my soul has leprosy. My soul has leprosy and you need to wash me. I need to be healed here. David trusts the mercy of God in this crazy way that his murdering, his lying, his adultery can be restored. And again, he has no proof in written history that God acts like this. And yet it starts to make sense why David is a man after God's own heart. He gets it. There's something intuitive when he looks at the law, he looks at how God has treated him, and he goes, I know in no way do I deserve anything for what I have done. Oh my gosh, I've taken another life. It's like the ultimate a violation against people being made in the image of God and your love for people. And I want to, I, I got to trust knowing how good your character is that you will wash me and make me new. I, I'm going to, that prayer that's usually done for the lepers, a king, to go, you, you, I need that. I need that for my soul. Heal me. He says, make, my, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Sin breaks us. It breaks us. We have to be honest about this. Anyone been in a relationship and you start to talk about your past and how you've been? And then someone just says, yeah, I'm really broken there. Like That's like a, whoa. You know, you, you get to look deer in headlights moment. You said something. You didn't mean to harm them. And, and then they're just like, oh, yeah, I'm really, that's actually, a, that's a tough one. I'm really broken there. What are they saying? Like, I, 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 there's something just like not, like not working. There's a part of who I am that does not work the way it's supposed to. It doesn't work anymore. I'm really broken there. And he, he cries out, heal me. If I can pull back the curtain for a second. I'm going through this like this because I think for us, like, we don't like to be really honest about the places that we're broken, the places that we need healed, where we need washed, where we need rescued. And we throw them out as pithy statements and worship songs and sing Amazing Grace and we go home and we feel moderately better about ourselves. And we're not actually honest about rooting out some of this stuff because God wants us to live. Okay, back behind the curtain. He then goes blot out like blot out my iniquities. Again, we just move over this so quickly. I was fascinated when I started to dig into this a little bit. Blotting out was something that I first mentioned in Genesis, uh, where it was like he blotted out the wicked 
Like he just like, he because everything was so broken, he just blotted them out. He just like did away with them. Every time blotting out is talked about in the Old Testament and how these Old Testament writers understand how God uh, worked, how they understand like what this relationship was, it was always just doing away. It was always linked. The sin was always linked with the person. This idea that we have of like, you know, love the sinner or love the sinner, hate the sin, that kind of like mentality of like, there's something separate. I am who I am and then there's my sin. This wasn't like a normal way of thinking. And what David is, is actually doing is separating them. He's like, look, I want to heal me. Like, would you blot out just that? Would you just do away with that? I, like, I need that gone. Like, I, I cannot blot it out. This is, again, a really fascinating development in how he understands who God is. And we're seeing the character of God open up. This is who God has always been. God ever, never changing. And we're starting to learn, right? This is almost the story of the Old Testament. I'm beginning to, oh, they, that's what God's like. We, we thought God was like this. We thought God was like angry like that. We thought God was like this. We thought, and then we see in Jesus, oh, that's what God is ultimately like. That's the picture we have. So he says, blot out, separate them. And he says, don't just wash me. Don't just heal me. And then he drops this. And this is just so powerful. He says, recreate me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We love to reinvent ourselves. We love to reinvent. I have a friend who has done it like five times in the last like five years, and he somehow pulls it off. Just like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm this now. Uh, we love to give a good friend of mine. I, I was hoping he would actually be here. I don't see him. Um, which is actually will make this better. Uh, so uh, he is, um, I, I, I'm wearing black, and uh, my jeans are moderately skinny. I feel like they're not crazy. So take, take this. You know, I got like a swoop, not a quite a, a you know, full V. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. And then, and then just take the V and bring it down to about the belly button. All right, tighten the jeans, give the right appropriate cuts. Um, you know, just the, the right fedora. And, and you've got my buddy of mine who is like just the penultimate hipster. Like, I am not a hipster in his presence. I, I bow to his hipsterness. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what a hipster is, God bless you. Go in, go in peace and joy. <laughs> About two years ago, he was wearing pink polo shirts. And two years before that, it was like cargo outdoor menswear. I love this dude. <laughs> he reinvents himself. And it's not just around his clothing. It's sort of like what he's into. It's kind of like, I'm into that now. I'd sell yesterday. He's constantly, it's not just following trends. It's just recreating kind of who, who he is. Like, re, like reinvent, or sorry, reinventing who he is. So our capacity to reinvent how we look, how we feel, what we're about, what we're into, how we come across. Uh, we reinvent our businesses all the time, right? Kara works for Business Innovation Factory. We innovate and we create new stuff. We can reinvent how we think about things. What we can't do, according to the scriptures, is recreate ourselves. And there is a difference. To recreate ourselves is something uh, to actually uh, uh, re, just kind of rebirth an entire new you. Like, I am so broken, David's crying out. Create in me a clean heart. I actually need a new heart. 
Like tear it out and put something else in its place. I need a fundamental shift in my identity because of what has happened. Next, restore me. Uh, the term restore here is shuv, which is where we get to shuva, which is where we get the term repentance. So we've gone from a confession to like, Lord, please wash me, to now he lands in, in a restore, in a turn back, in a repentance posture. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit, and then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted. And that term there is, again, shuv. They will return to you. God, please return me to who I know you made me to be. And when you do that, other people are gonna return to who they were created to be. He's like, use me as an example, right? He's like, take the, uh, for some of us, uh, my wife has been really open about struggling in, in high school, the eating disorder, and this, in some fundamental way, was like her cry. It was like, Lord, in returning me back to the person you made me to be, without all this anxiety and stress and depression, can you then use others that they would return to you through me? And her ministry to other women who struggle with some of the things she struggled with has been unbelievable to watch. Unbelievable to watch how to see other folks who are struggling, wrestling, and deeply broken come back to who they were created to be. And then he ends. He ends with a vow of thanks. So it's a confession, it's an appeal. Please, God, your mercy. Here's what I did, I wanna be honest. Please restore me, wash me, heal me, recreate me, restore me, and then a vow of thanks. He says, deliver me, Lord, from blood guiltiness. Oh God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Oh God, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He's like, I get it. God, you can't do anything if I'm not confessing. That's not a limitation of God's power statement. That's like a, I want you to be broken and contrite and open to me. You've, you've got to be aware we can't do this. That's like the person who's in denial about what's going on and you try to help them. Right? Anyone try to do that? Like, man, if you could just churn this around, dude, and they're like, no, that's not really going on. No, I saw you do it. No, it was different than what you saw. All right, maybe that's you today, and you're that person who you know people have been knocking at your door on something, and you just have refused to listen or engage it. We see, for David, this whole thing was coming. There are cracks in his character that we can learn from and be aware of. And I don't have time to go through them all. But with the David and Goliath story, right, the epic tale of David, we leave out the part. Usually the Bible kids story starts with, and he went out to face the Philistine. Right? That's where it starts. Except there was like a promise of a woman and a security in life. And he asks about that, like I think, I can't remember how many times he asks about it before he actually goes before the giant. So there's a little bit of mixed motives there, actually, in David going before Goliath. We find out that David accrues many wives. He's not supposed to do that. There's actually strict commands, and he gets rebuked for it later. He's not supposed to do that. He accrues many horses. So there's a military issue, a sexuality issue, and a comfort issue that we can see if we look through the story of David that are all little cracks in his character, and they go untouched and uncalled out. He does not own them, and no one else helps him own what's there, and they culminate in some way in this. This is why counseling is beautiful. I am so jacked up. I go to a counselor. I, this is, what I'm about to say is zero, like, negativity towards counseling. I, I am all for it. Like, yes, okay, we got that out of the way. But counseling is meant to be morally neutral. And we need, we need someone who's not going to be morally neutral. 
You have to get counsel that's informing the core longings of your heart. Confession and going before and being honest about what is truly right, not just discovering what's going on, that's part of it, but to actually uh, be faced with your brokenness. If you get caught, I always ask people when it comes to their sin, it's like when I, I, a lot of times, especially as the church gets bigger, I deal with some of the, like, the big stuff. And so when I find out that someone's like done something and that we got to talk about it and it's something that's happened in the church, so often my first question is, did they, did they offer this up or did they get caught? Because that actually fundamentally shifts what the restoration process looks like. Did they get caught in this or did they actually offer it up? If you get caught in it, it's, it's too late to walk away without consequences. It's not too late for the grace of God. It's not too late for his mercy and love and restoration. But it changes the consequences dearly. You're not going to outsmart God. And over a long period of time, if you continue to think of this thing, I'm just not going to acknowledge it. I'm not going to own it. I'm not going to deal with it, however small or massive it may be. And you cannot thrive underneath that kind of weight. Like, there's stuff that some of you are struggling with, and we just need to have a moment of, like, reality. Like, let's just be honest. We actually just have to be honest and say, okay, here's what it is. Here's what it is. There is always a way out. And the way out can lead to life. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus comes alongside the most broken, messed up, hypocritical people. But man, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if we are not people who actually offer that up, then we're engaging in like a neutered, a neutered power. <laughs> a power that's been stripped of anything that can truly restore us and something that just helps us make feel okay about entering another week of doing the same thing. Again, we want to be a church that goes there. And we want to be a church that's honest. And we want to be a church and a community that can actually begin to expose the stuff that's in our hearts so that we can take hold of the healing. David's Hail Mary is not so much a Hail Mary anymore in light of Jesus. And, you know, we'll get to Jesus in a little bit. But <laughs> in our series, that I mean. But we have to go back to him when we talk about the fall because we're not living on the side of uh, the other side of, of Jesus coming. We're living on the side of knowing that we have been forgiven and set free and by Jesus' power and his might and by the way in which he has organized the church that we can engage restoration. We can be healed. Some of us, um, guys, be just straightforward with you guys about this. Like, I know some of us uh, have been handled, handed a lot of stuff that's really dark. Uh, some of you are listening to all this and you've, you're actually in a place right now of just being overwhelmed by how much of a, of a victim you are because of X, Y, or Z. Abuse, abandonment, anger, emotional vacancy. Some of you like, like grew up and like, you, know, you were never like held. <laughs> Workaholism, you grew up in an environment that was so work, like disgaged by that. You grew up in an environment of lying. You're a product of generations. And if you don't become aware of what those things are, if you don't become aware of like what's been passed down to you, like it will eat you up. It's like the person who's so angry, any of you like really angry at your parents, right? And you've got that script going right now, I will never be like that. Like those are the famous last words. 
We know that if we don't get intervention. I've shared this story before, but I think it's worth repeating. My brother Nathan's 21st birthday, we all went out to a, a pub down in South County. And um, we, at that point in our relationships, we, we didn't really open up to each other a ton. But we start talking about like, wow, this is so weird. You know, my sister um, was still, she's the youngest, but it, it felt really significant moment that the three boys, like we were all like, you know, I don't know, able to drink together for some reason. That was like a rite of passage for us. And we're sitting there and we just go, how crazy is it? The amount of stuff that we didn't have to endure because of mom and dad coming to Jesus. Now my mom is still haunted by stuff that happened in her childhood. My dad still struggles with being X, Y, and Z because of how his dad was. But that's so much and so clearly the old person in their life. For every way that old self starts to creep back up, it's incredible that we have not had to endure so much of the generational brokenness that would have been passed down, emotional despondency, alcoholism, a, a total lack of just love and care and affirmation and emotional vulnerability. I could go through the laundry list of my, my parents' parents' stuff. Some of you have baggage. And some of you have something that's even harder sometimes to detect, like that really subtle stuff that you don't even realize was wrong. And it was amazing as we sat there and we just went, how cool is it that mom and dad chose to put their trust in Jesus, chose to continually over the lifetime bring their confession, bring their hurts to seek to get help. There's so many times when I was a kid, I was convinced my parents were gonna get divorced because of the way they fought and to see them fight through it. And they say, they've said so many times, if it was not for Jesus, if it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for Jesus, this, like fill in the blank. And my, us as kids, Stephen and Nathan and I, we sat around going, that's crazy. I don't even know what it is to not feel like loved. I don't know what it is to not be like held and cared for. I don't know what it is to like not know an emotional, like, you know, an emotionally attentive, well, at least mom. Like I've said, my mom is this Irish-blooded woman who kept, keeps nothing in, so that's great. Are we aware of where we come from? And are we maybe the first like link in the chain that needs to like restore some of the brokenness that's happened? I think at the end of the day, this phrase I remember hearing someone say is that when it comes to engaging the psalmist's like grid here in Psalm 51, and trusting that we have a God who will set us free, wash us, recreate us, set us free, is this phrase, you don't have to live like this. I don't know if anyone's ever said anything like that to you. Like, you, you don't have to live, like, with that. You, you, you don't have to live anymore like this. Whether it's workaholism, whether it's this lying thing, whether it's that screen I can't not click on. Right? Whether it's, oh, every time I'm in that setting or every time I'm slightly depressed, the credit card goes out and I just, I can't not buy that. Every time I hit like over blank amount of calories, I, I have to purge. I, 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 I think really awfully about this. I actually can't control not lusting over that guy's wife or that situation or wish that I was somewhere else. Whatever, fill in the blank of the way of Jesus that is not what God's called you to be. If you're here and you are a child, you are a child of God, lavished in his love. He loves you. He is for you. He is with you. And I can guarantee that he is calling you forward. 
into the person he wants you to be. He weeps over our sin. God gets mad and angry at our sin like a father who gets pissed off at the cancer that's inside of his child. We see this over and over and over again. And so are we going to be people that cry out like David, go wash me, cleanse me, recreate me. I, I've sinned first and foremost before I reconcile with anybody else. It's you, God, the lover of my soul. I have sinned against. And we go before God with no condemnation. We go before God without guilt or shame. We go before God knowing that he desires to set us free. When we first launched, I used this phrase. Um, uh, I, I kind of say it all the time. Hold on, I'm gonna blow this candle out. Nailed it. I used this phrase when it came to sin. And it was like a, sort of like a hashtag or something, like get into it. Like, just get excited about dealing with your sin. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the response shouldn't be an overwhelming sense of just how depraved am I. It should be, I'm going to step in with boldness and excitement and the knowing that my God goes with me to begin to wrestle with this. And it might be hard. It might mean you need to be honest about some stuff. It might mean you need to turn to your best mate and admit some things. For some of you, you're actually carrying around, again, like the impact of someone else's sin. And you need to realize that you are forgiven, set free, can be washed and recreated. You're, you're carrying around all of this guilt and all of this exhaustion. And you are feeling so uncomfortable right now because you're like, okay, I got to admit that. I got to own that. Or, or, or you're like, I don't know how to deal with this, what's been done to me. And man, whether it's in your home groups and the people that you, you've gotten to know, um, whether it's someone back home, you just need to get the word out. You just need to say it. There's so much more we could say about confession than repentance. But I think even just going through this psalm. So I want to actually walk us through that uh, as we kind of enter into the last part of our service today. Uh, there's this song um, that uh, I, I really love. Uh, it's a song that we did um, kind of in the early days a lot. It's called uh, Tear Out My Heart. Uh, It came to mind, obviously, given this text today. And uh, I wanted to to sing it for us. And I'm actually, you can feel free to sing, but actually more than that, I I would love, um, I'd love for us during this time uh, to actually retrace the steps of David, of making our appeal and our confession and our cry for restoration, and knowing that we have a Jesus who has forgiven us of our sins and set us free, and to just to begin to own, own that, and own those places, and let these sort of words of this psalm kind of wash over us. Lord God, I pray in this moment uh, for my brothers and sisters uh, who, who know your voice. This would be uh, a sacred moment, one filled with your redemptive, restoring, forgiving, washing love. That as we seek to understand what our story has to do with your story, that you, God, 
um, would bring up those things that we need to be freed from. He would cause us to own it and bring before you and confess to you, Lord, in a new way. <laughs>